Welcome to the Ohio Adult Allies Podcast Season 2, where we are developing, inspiring, and empowering youth leaders. In this episode, we discuss nurturing young people who seek social justice. Hi, I'm Juliana Fellows uh, from Prevention Action Alliance, a nonprofit agency in Columbus, Ohio, that works with um, stakeholders across the state. Um, um, prevention services. And I am the community prevention manager that oversees youth and young adult services. And I oversee, as part of my role there, I oversee the Ohio Youth Led Prevention Network, which supports the Ohio Adult <clears throat> Ally Program, uh, the arm of that network, of this network of OYLPN. We like to use lots of acronyms in our world. So the Ohio Youth-Led Prevention Network is OYLPN. If I say OYLPN, now you know. Um, And each year, Prevention Action Alliance hosts an Ohio Adult Ally Summit. Now, Adult Allies is the term that we use for adult professionals who are working with youth, whether that's a youth program, um, an after-school program, youth led program. Um, So adult ally is the term that we use for those professional adults working directly with youth or in some way, shape or form. Um, And each year we host an Ohio Adult Ally Summit. And this event is intended as an educational networking and professional development opportunity for adult allies working with youth. Youth-led prevention programming in Ohio specifically is supporting adult allies in their initiatives where youth are leading the way in prevention messaging to their peers. This event provides content that enhances the theory and application of youth-led programming specifically in Ohio. At this year's summit, we have invited Emily Chiariello. Is that, did I say that correctly, Emily? Oh, thank goodness. Um, Emily is an independent consultant specializing in diversity and equity in K through 12 education. So welcome, Emily. And how about you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thanks, Juliana. And greetings, everyone. Uh, My name is Emily Chiarello. I am an anti-bias educator and an independent consultant. I do specialize in diversity, equity, and inclusion in K-12 classrooms. And I've um, founded and and run an organization called Education for the Good. And at Education for the Good, I help clients build their capacity to promote equity and support diversity, whether in the work they do directly with students and communities or through the content and services they provide to educators who are working with students and communities. Um, so I, my background is in education. I'm a, I have a decade um, plus experience in the classroom teaching middle school and high school social studies and language arts. I've also been a new teacher mentor and instructional coach. And I spent about four or five years working for an organization called Learning for Justice which was formerly called Teaching Tolerance. Some of you all might be familiar with the group. 
And while I was at that organization, had the privilege um, of, of being involved in writing um, an anti-bias framework, um, which outlines benchmarks and goals for bringing social justice and anti-bias education into classrooms and youth-led spaces. And so that's one, that framework is something I really look forward to talking about and sharing as a tool with the adult allies in this community. Thank you, Emily. Well, well then let's get into the meat of what you do, um, starting off with your anti-bias education work. So go into a little more detail about that. And then if you could also add, you know, what is the purpose? So tell us a little bit more and then what is the purpose of the work? Sure, thanks for that. Um, so the approach, anti-bias education is an, an approach or a pedagogy that dates back um, to the 1980s. And at least the work that I draw upon is um, from Louise Derman Sparks and um, her partner, Julie Olson Edwards, who in the late 80s wrote a book called um, Anti-bias education for ourselves, for young children and ourselves. Uh, and in that text, the authors outlined some basic goals for anti-bias education. And those goals, I believe, really form a framework for whether um, formal, formal framework for inside of um, teaching and learning spaces like classrooms or informal education, like some of the work that um, adult allies are doing in youth-led programming. And what anti-bias education basically puts forth is this idea that learning ought to be transformative, that we can take um, a learning experience and use it to transform our communities, our societies, and our world. And it does that through really four big goals. And these are the lenses that I look at education through. And the first lens would be identity. And that is um, helping students know who they are and like who they are, helping students develop positive, healthy self-esteem and um, positive identity development. The second goal in anti-bias education has to do with diversity. And that is supporting students in learning about others, learning about what they share in common with others, how they are different from other folks and having respect for those issues around sameness and difference. Once identity and diversity have been, are, are sort of um, a foundation for the work, the really important element of justice comes in. So that is the third goal of anti-bias education, that young people will be able to identify unfairness and injustice when they see it, and to be able to really name the ways in which injustice hurts people and communities. And probably the, the final goal, and probably the one that I think is most, um, most sort of inherently connected to the mission that you all are doing in the Alliance is action. And that action goal says that students not only know who they are, not only respect others, not only recognize unfairness, but they believe they can and must make a difference in the world. And so that action goal is really um, the call, call to action that educators and students um, really are the, to your second part of your question, sort of what is the purpose? The purpose becomes action-based and action-oriented so that once the foundation and identity, diversity, and justice have been laid, there are outcomes that really do result in transformation of communities. Thank you for that. I love that you said that education should be 
um, transformative. Uh, that's really speaks to youth-led programming. So in your words, you say education is transformative and then that binding, that last element of um, anti-bias education, the action, that binding piece is um, like you said, where we're putting into action to transform communities through educating our young people um, through youth-led programming and involvement in that. And so while well, you say transformative, we say empowerment. So that belief in your, in one's ability to um, make changes and um, have them be change, you know, changing not just the individual, but the community itself. So I love that transformative piece. And I love that last pillar, whatever you want to call it, that action piece, because that's really um, what we are engaging young people in doing and taking action through the education of being involved in youth-led and taking that education and turning it into action. So I love that you um, defined it in that way and made that link. So I guess to know a little bit more, how, how do you define um, anti-bias, equity, the work that you do, how do you um, define equity? How do you define diversity? And then how do you support equity and diversity in your work? Sure. Well, just like you said, in your work, there are lots of acronyms. In this work, there's lots of jargon and lots of language because we are trying to use um, accuracy of language to communicate um, you know, where people are coming from. And so I think the language matters a lot. I don't want to um, put forth sort of a definitive, you know, definition necessarily of any of these concepts, but I'll tell you a little bit about how I see them um, as the same and different. I think one useful um, construct that your listeners might be familiar with is the distinction between equity and equality, right? And so a lot of folks you've seen the image online of three individuals trying to view a ball game, right? And they're sort of like standing, there's a fence in their way, they can't see the ball game. And so they're standing on, under the equality notion, they're standing on three equal, same um, um, uh, boxes. And um, of course that doesn't allow, that doesn't result in the outcome that's needed because all three of these individuals are different heights and standing on these the same boxes just perpetuates the inequality. Equity, which is the goal that we're looking more for, that we're looking for in anti-bias education. Equity says that we don't give everyone the same things. We give everyone what they need, right? They, we give folks, we meet folks where they are and we provide um, the resources and the context, the opportunity context for equal outcomes, access, equal access to um, outcomes. So I think, I think that's one distinction that folks want to spend some time with, that equity does not mean the same. Um, and that equity is really about providing structural um, adjustments for folks to have equal access. Another way I like to think about this in terms of educational equity, and I borrow this from a friend and mentor, Micah Pollack, who is a professor and racial justice advocate. She talks about educational equity in terms of um, climates or communities where every student and all groups of students 
have a full chance to develop their vast human talents. And so I really like that idea as a vision for a learning community um, where all students and all groups of students have a chance to develop their vast human talents. And I think that builds on your question about how, how to define diversity, because diversity is really just a descriptive word to talk about you know, who all is sitting at the table, who all is in the room with us, who all is here, and what are the gifts and assets and lived experiences we bring with us to the table. Equity is when we really work out, are we all included in, in the conversation? Are we all do we all have a comfortable um, and decent seat at this table? Thank you. Um, so if I'm hearing correctly, and, and this is just could just be my interpretation that diversity is um, kind of that action piece, like, like you said, recognizing who's at the table, or maybe who's missing at the table, and then that which leads to or could lead to that equity, the systematic equity, however that looks. Um, so as an adult ally, how can an adult ally who's working with youth introduce this information, you know, anti-bias, diversity, equity, how can they introduce this to young people? Sure. Well, um, I think this is in some ways, the answer to this is easier and more obvious than we might make it. And the first, the most obvious and important response is, the way we introduce students to this work or young people to this work is letting them introduce it to us, letting them lead the way, hearing students clearly, hearing what students' interests are, hearing what students' needs are, where their concerns are, um, and then sort of using that as, um, as the target for where we're headed. Now, how to find out what student, that, that, that means that the work and the fun happens in how do we learn our students? How do we learn what students are interested in? How do we learn what students are worried about and what students care about? And so that becomes a, that becomes a sort of um, collaborative um, allyship, which is why I really like this idea of adult allies. I even think that um, in a teaching and learning context, a teacher can be seen as an ally and that she is really facilitating the learning. She is not leading or constructing the learning. She is facilitating the learning or the experience for the young people. And so I'd say the first way to introduce is to really be culturally responsive to your students. That is taking a look at what they are bringing into the space on a daily basis and building on that rather than importing our own narrative or our own um, agenda. But on a more technical level, I would say um, the social justice standards, which is a tool that Learning for Justice has developed, I mentioned it earlier, can really provide a roadmap to help do some of the technical planning and implementation of anti-bias work with students. And so in, um, and this will be form this sort of skeleton or the outline of the talk I gave in December, which is how, to, how do we recognize when students are engaged in identity, diversity, justice and action work? What does that look like? What are those skills? What are those competencies? And so we see that, for instance, in the justice domain, it's not just a matter of um, having students identify injustice or inequality. It's also having students identify in history 
figures who have fought against in, uh, racial injustice, who fought against oppression. It's also um, about not just identifying moments of injustice and episodes of inequality in our history, but it's about naming and empathizing with the harm done by that injustice. And so there are um, sort of nuances or levels within each of those four domains, identity, diversity, justice, and action. And the social justice standards, this framework really articulates what those sort of nuances and those levels are. And so then an adult ally can kind of use this framework to say, okay, um, before I jump into this justice topic, right? Let's say my students are interested in an issue around climate change, or my students are interested in an issue around um, substance abuse or an addiction, or students are, are concerned and focused on um, racial justice and policing, any number of issues that young people care about and bring up. Many of those issues are gonna live in, appear to live in the justice domain. Um, but anti-bias education wants us to make sure that our conversations around those topics begin and carry through the identity and diversity piece so that students are able to say, here's how this issue affects me personally and look at their peer and notice that that, that might not be the same for my peer. Or to say, um, you know, here's, here's how, here's, here's what I uniquely bring to this issue um, but here's how this issue affects other communities disproportionately. And so uh, my, my point in saying that is to say that adult allies, I think, can really help around social justice by not just jumping right into the justice work, but maintaining and laying a foundation of identity and diversity so that students feel um, respected and valued in the work. Not only are you speaking to my profession, but also my passion. <laughs> so thank you. I love how you preface that. I love everything about that. Um, the fact that I think as adults and, you know, responding to our current environment, I think our first, I don't know if it's a knee jerk or just a reaction is to jump into that you know, social justice piece, but I love how you said, we can't just jump into that without understanding or having, helping our youth understand their own identity and their own diversity and others' identity and others' diversity. So thank you for that. So as adult allies are working on these topics with youth, how do they create those safe spaces? And, you know, when we, when I say, Space. I don't just mean the room that we're sitting in, but just, you know, that comfort level of having these conversations with young people and bringing these, this topic to the forefront. So how would an adult ally create a safe space with you to continue the conversation? Yeah, that's an excellent question and a huge part of the work. So thank you for that. I think, um, well, well, one thing I want to offer for folks to contemplate is the difference between a safe space and a brave space. Um, safe spaces, um, while, while of course I understand the intention and we want to arrive at, in a safe space, can sometimes be um, fraught or problematic in, in, in a few ways. One being that we can't really promise our students 
that safety 24 seven, 365 days a week. So we might create an identity safe classroom or an identity safe after school program where students can show up and be accepted and respected as their full selves, but that's not necessarily preparing them for spaces that they're, they're gonna need to negotiate after my program where they might not necessarily experience that same level of safety. So with the same principles in mind of safe spaces, brave spaces, has um, more of an element of uh, helping folks find the strength and the courage to enter into uncomfortable or difficult conversations despite the discomfort and to sort of practice being a little uncomfortable and building up some of that resilience and some of those skills and capacities. Um, the other problem some folks have said with safe spaces is that sometimes it gives us an out. It gives us, um, you know, let's say our, let's say the need is for us to speak up or stand up to bias or prejudice. Um, sometimes in a, in a safe space, we might feel that um, comfort and um, sort of comfort and getting along is sort of the ideal. And so we would just want to emphasize that in a brave space, comfort's not necessarily the goal, right? Um, like we said, transformation, equity, awareness, those are the goals. And so for that, we might need some discomfort. So I'd say for the adult allies trying to create brave spaces for their students uh, their, and their youth that they work with, um, the first step is really checking in with self. It's, we talk about this work being inside out work. So before I can start sort of um, directing or even gently, um, gently coaxing or catalyzing or however, whatever we do to motivate and inspire our students, before we even get into that work, we need to really check in with ourselves. How comfortable am I with this topic? How have my own social positioning and privilege and power impacted my relationship to this issue? And does that mean I need some other adults to help me out here? Does that mean that I need to be more quiet and do more listening? Does that mean I need to do some reading and learning on the history of this topic? Um, and do I have to check some of my own biases because I feel triggered and emotional when certain topics come up? So there's a whole, whole section of this work that's really about self-reflection. Um, I'd say once that work has, I mean, that work never ends. So in addition to that work, another really important and successful strategy I've seen used in creating brave spaces is setting community agreements or discussion norms. So that as a community, as, um, as, a, as in a space, we have certain agreements that we've arrived at for how we're gonna talk about these things, for how we're gonna talk to one another. So this might be simple, rules about no put downs, but this could be more, um, more complex or more challenging um, norms like um, take space, make space, which is one that I like to use, which is trying to create more equity of voice. So folks who participate a lot in our verbal processors are called upon to sort of tone it down or, or edit themselves. And young people who are a little shy and spend a lot of time sort of thinking and editing their words, have a little more courage to, to make, to take some space and speak up. Um, other, other community norms have to do with being an active listener, um, respecting privacy, 
engaging. One I really like that I think is useful for adults and, and youth is um, um, in terms of disagreements, challenge the idea, not the identity, challenge the idea, not the person. This is something that comes up a lot with young people if we're having a conversation about a controversial topic things can get really heated and it's very easy for it to slide into sort of put downs or um, sarcasm and, and kind of harsh joking and, and whatnot that peers might do with one another. And, and that can really shut folks down and be detrimental to the, to the conversation. And so a norm that we can work on is focus on the idea that you're discussing, not focusing on the person who you're talking to. So yeah, I would say a combination of adults doing the self-work and working with their students to develop those community agreements um, are both helpful in making those brave spaces. Thank you, Emily. That was very um, good information. Even your examples of um, how to do that. <laughs> very useful information. And I love the whole, you know, check in with yourself, the self-reflection thing, again, Sometimes as adults, we think we know what's best for everyone. And, you know, sometimes we do have to take a step back and say, okay, where am I at with that? So since we, we're gonna continue with how to help adult allies um, do this work with youth, but why also is it important to even do the work with the youth? Sure. Um, I think, I mean, there are so many, so many ways to discuss the importance of this work. I think, I think probably what's most important to me is that students are authentically engaged in their own lives, right? And so that they're not just going to school or going to programs to receive, they're not just empty vessels receiving deposits of information, receiving, you know, information and indoctrination and sort of rote learning. Social justice, anti-bias education really puts the student in charge of her own learning. And I don't mean, I don't mean a teacher becomes, you becomes irrelevant because the educator and the adult ally is, is, um, is central, but their role is more facilitative. And so the why becomes help, helping students become independent thinkers, raising their critical consciousness so that as voters, as citizens, as community members, they, are, they grow up and um, move into a space authentically where they feel empowered to transform things that are not right. Um, so I think there's a civic mission in um, in the work adult allies do and in the work of anti-bias education in terms of you know, looking at youth-led youth communities as sort of microcosms of what the future will be like. Um, I think the why for me is really that civic piece of, of being sort of an active member of a community. Yeah, and that, um, what you just said, completely speaks to the work of youth-led programming, that empowerment piece where we want young people to gain the information that they need, be a part of that information, be a part of developing it, and then taking it out into their communities, not just now in their culture now, but something that they'll carry forward with them as they um, grow into young adults and adulthood. And when we 
think of youth-led programming and that sustainability piece, this is part of that sustainability piece, that civic duty um, in being involved in policy and advocacy to change systems, ultimately. What are some examples that you have seen young, where young people are engaged in the anti-bias, the social justice, um, the equity and the diversity? Where have you seen some examples of young people being engaged in this work? Sure. No, I love that question. And I think this is where we can really draw a lot of inspiration. I mean, we have some more, more sort of public and large scale examples in recent years. We have the young people from Parkland who really stepped up and um, took action around gun violence. And in, even in that example, we saw issues around intersectionality and identity becoming relevant because those students in Parkland um, said, look, we're from a sort of privileged, affluent suburban school setting and gun violence has affected us. But let's talk about students and young people who have gun violence sort of surrounding them in a daily basis in the, in the, on a community level, um, students of color and young people around the country. And so those Parkland students made sort of um, a pledge to commit to solidarity with young people who might not look like them, but who are experiencing some of the similar um, injustices. So I like to draw inspiration from movement makers like those. You also, of course, since the summer and the racial reckoning of 2020, we see students really flocking to the cause of Black Lives Matter and um, justice in policing. And so you see more and more students engaged in that work. Um, some of that early work um, when, during the Trayvon Martin um, incident um, and murder um, was led by young people, the Dream Defenders, um, also in Florida. But what I like to draw, what, I, what I'm most moved by, I mean, those are fabulous examples and I think we should continue to look at those large movements and um, kind of organize, organizing, but I'm inspired by the daily actions of young people who might decide to speak up to a peer who says something transphobic, who might, might decide to interrupt or speak up to an adult who, who, has, um, who, has, who has perpetuated a stereotype or a mis racial misconception during her, her teaching. Um, and so what, some of the work I do is around this program called Speak Up at School, where instead of students thinking that action looks like these big, you have to be at a march or a rally and have a sign and have the right t-shirt and sort of becomes kind of performative. I like to think about students taking social action in their daily lives in small micro ways. And so what do we literally, what are the words that we can say when we're confronted with bias? What are some of the actions we can take when we witness um, prejudice? And so I see students doing that type of stuff um, that type of action all of the time. Um, locally, there's recently um, a group of students organizing to object to some racist rhetoric um, of some of the adults in their community lately. And so they, they've sort of spoken up and, and said no and resisted, um, resisted that and are challenging that. You also see students get involved in some of the curricular decisions made that impact them. Um, when certain classes have been canceled or removed, classes particularly around culture and race and identity, um, students rallying around those classes 
and supporting those educators and saying, no, we want to learn our hard history. We want um, we want to continue in this kind of critical um, raising our critical consciousness. So I would say there's just a vast uh, there's just a real spectrum of student action from the large you know, movement making kind of actions to the smaller, um, sometimes even harder everyday actions of interrupting um, a peer. So yeah, I, all of it, all of it inspires me. So as the Ohio Youth Led Prevention Network conducts its work with youth and the adults, you know, supporting those youth, we too like to have that broad range of impact whether it, we do host an annual rally, but we also you know, support our youth council who identifies areas of focus and how they address those areas could be through social media. They could be through conversations with their peers from their home groups, and then you know, the work continues through there. So I love that you gave such a broad range of examples because you know, while those big events get a lot of attention, the, the little pieces that go on that don't necessarily get a lot of attention are just as essential. So thank you for that. That's right, that's right. Yeah, sure. Um, so what would be some barriers? Um, when we started off the year with our statewide youth council, you know, they're telling us about their teen experience, how, what it's like to be a young person and pressures and those types of things. But we also included like, okay, so what are the barriers to your experience as a young person and what you wanna do, how you wanna conduct the work that we do here in this, um, in this small community? So then I will reflect the same question to you. What are some barriers that young people might experience to this work? Sure, I mean, I think young people are, uh, suffer the, the impact of ageism, you know, and this idea that sort of young people aren't smart enough or ready enough or mature enough um, or, or don't sort of haven't earned or don't deserve certain um, amounts of kind of control or power or authority. And so that kind of, uh, condescension or patronizing sort of attitude that folks might have towards young people in the work, whether that's um, implicit or explicit, I think that's always going to be there. Um, I think there are other more sort of philosophical obstacles that are, are related to ageism, but have more to do with the way we see education in our society, which is Again, are you preparing students for college and career? Are you preparing students for, um, as, you know, in a, in a civic, in terms of their civic responsibility, what are we preparing students for? And very often we see adults who are not allies, who are really, who, who may love and care for their students and work very hard, but who are really there to sort of um, carry out a script or carry out a narrative and deliver information that this, the young people are to then receive. And it's sort of um, a one-way kind of linear approach. Um, and that can be a real obstacle. So in other words, if you have young people who are whose critical consciousness has been raised, they're going to be questioning authority. They're going to be challenging structures. They're going to be asking the tough questions. And in a more traditional 
form of education or adult youth relationship more traditionally will sometimes regard that as disrespectful or as non-compliant or as you know not following not following the, the rules and so i mean so i think the biggest barrier can be adults we need to get out of the way and we need to adjust our philosophy and our pedagogy to understand that our young people are our partners in this work and in many ways are our leaders in this work um and then other obstacles i'd say that you see are really structural like you know students are many students are so busy and they're often busy um, helping meet the needs of their families. Many students have jobs, many students have siblings that they're helping care for, um, relatives, elders, folks in, the, in their homes that are sick or just don't have access to the same resources that other students have access to. And so whether that's through technology and social media or through the funds for traveling, or just through sort of the invisible social um, networking of knowing people in places of power. I think some of those structural um, inequalities can impact students' ability, students' empowerment, which is why it's really cool if, when possible to create more integrated spaces where young people from different communities can come together and share resources. But yeah, I'd say those are some of the obstacles, the philosophical ones that the adults kind of bring with us, and then the structural ones that students are dealing with in their daily lives. So as we are wrapping up, Emily, where can adult allies or really anyone who's listening, where can they find more information on the work you do? And then, you know, any additional resources that you can provide? Sure. Um, well, you're, I definitely recommend folks check out the organization mentioned earlier, Learning for Justice. You can go to learningforjustice.org. Those materials are all free and there's everything from lesson plans to films to planning tools. All of that, um, you just have to set up an account, but it's free and it's available to formal and informal educators alike. So it's a perfect place for adult allies. Um, I also follow the Zen Education Project. I follow a group called Teaching for Change. I follow the Human Rights Coalition's organization um, um, around gender diversity. And um, uh, let's think of Rethinking Schools as another organization that might be interesting. These are all organizations that have magazines, websites with materials and um, and tools on them. As far as following me, it's Emily Chiarello, C-H-I-A-R-I-E-L-L-O. And you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, and check me out, Education for the Good. I'd love to be connected. Um, I'm sort of a nascent social, social media person, but I'm definitely there. I'm definitely posting and um, conversing with folks on issues. And uh, yeah, I look forward to meeting more adult allies and to having a more, even more robust conversation about anti-bias education coming up, uh, I think in this early December. Yes, you are correct. Um, thank you for that information. And you, for um, Ohio Adult Allies, uh, you can find more information on the OILPN, Ohio Youth Led Prevention Network, at preventionactionalliance.org. 
but that will also lead you to ohioadultallies.com, which also has their own website and is filled, I mean, just packed with resources and information about youth lead prevention in Ohio. Additionally, like Emily just said, our Ohio Adult Ally Summit will be virtually this year, um, as it was last year, and it is December 3rd. If you go visit preventionactionalliance.org, it is the save the date is on the website. Registration is not yet open, but you have just got a, gotten a preview of some of the content that will be available to adult allies at the summit. Um, participation or registration will be limited. So keep stopping back at the preventionactionalliance.org page for more information, including registration to come. Um, as we wrap up, one final question. What is a final piece of advice, Emily, <laughs> do you have for adult allies or really any adult working with youth um, thinking about incorporating this work? Yeah, thank you for that. And before I answer that, I want to say I had sort of a delayed brain moment a minute ago, and I just recalled the name. Welcoming Schools is the organization through the Human Rights Coalition that I was recommending. And Welcoming Schools is a great organization with resources for how to be an adult ally to LGBTQ plus students. So that's um, a resource I encourage you to check out. In terms of advice for what comes next, I think I think this is really about sort of courage and bravery. Um, I think I know that sounds almost counterintuitive, but for us as adults to sort of step outside of our um, sage on the stage kind of role um, and really have the courage to sort of step into the unknown because when you turn conversations over to young people, really great things can happen, but it can be a little scary because you don't know where you're going. You don't know where you're headed necessarily. And you're not, you're not the captain of the ship. And so I think um, having first that courage and that bravery to sort of let go of perfection and let go of control, I think is really important. And then a second thing, I know you, I think you asked for one, but I'll, I'll put, pull in a second thing, is to just continue to become, uh, be increasingly educated yourself. Um, you know, even since 2020 as a country, it's like we're suddenly sort of um, more broadly exposed to some of the hard history of our, of our nation's history, some of the hard elements of our nation's history. And adults are learning um, along with students about some of that history. And so I think my second piece of advice would be to bone up on history, to bone up on what's going on in, in your community and to become more and more educated in terms of issues around justice and, and, and equity. I'll take all three of those pieces of advice. And two words that I, that stuck with me are, um, we should be asking adults when working with youth to be educated adventurists <laughs> because it truly is like an adventure with youth when you are giving them, you know, the reins to say, all right, what do you think? Um, so, and it does take courage and bravery. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today. 
And I absolutely look forward to the summit and having you there and engaging um, our um, broader adult ally audience. I think this is going to be a spectacular event this year. And um, yeah, I thank you for your participation in the podcast and being a keynote speaker at our event. Well, you're more than welcome. It's my pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to what comes next. Thanks, Gianna. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for joining us today on the Ohio Adult Allies podcast. If you would like more information on our work, visit us at ohioadultallies.com. You can find more episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and other platforms by searching Ohio Adult Allies.